Hey everyone, welcome to What Are You Watching? I'm Alex Wither and I'm joined by my best friend Nick Dostal. How you doing there, Mulroney? <laughs> Excited to be here. I always try to catch you off guard. That's my goal. You always do. We asked and you answered. We were looking for a new solo film to cover and we were kind of leaning towards Zodiac. We've been talking about doing this one for a while, but you had the idea to ask our Twitter followers which movie we should talk about next. And we gave them. Do you remember the ones we told them? Zodiac, Magic Mike, Whiplash, and Knight of Cups. <laughs> which <And> got zero <laughs> votes. <laughs> Man, kind of really hope we get to do Knight of Cups. <laughs> I know. We were, yeah, that was what we were like, yeah, definitely secretly rooting for. But we will cover it someday. But alas, David Fincher's 2007 masterpiece, Zodiac, was chosen by a large margin. And here we are. And we have a lot to say about this very big, very well-made, somewhat oddly ignored movie but this is certainly, and I would, say, I would say almost objectively, one of the best crime films made so far this century and one of Fincher's best works. But honestly, I just kind of want to kick this off and throw it to you by saying, like, has a better serial killer movie been made since then? And then as an addition to that, was this the best serial killer movie since David Fincher's own seven? So and and Fincher might even argue with me that it, that this isn't a serial killer movie, but actually a journalism movie. But anyway, you look at it. It's just a great film. Yeah. And you can't really argue that when it comes to murder, I suppose, if that's going to be an overall theme, Fincher's probably the best director to tackle it today. Yeah. Seven is my personal favorite Fincher movie. But these could not be worlds apart different, but equally so well done. And Seven is actually my favorite Fincher film, too. It always has been. I've The grittiness of that is, oh, God, I remember seeing that at such a young age and thinking, like, this is what, quote unquote, a dark movie is. Not something that just, like, takes place at night, just where the subject material is so grim and dark. And if you watch that back to back with this... This is an incredibly polished movie. Even, you know, we were texting and kind of talking about the movie from its first shot, which was so controlled. And when you listen to the commentary that Fincher talks about how long it took them just to achieve what viewers may deem as like a simple, you know, shot in a car looking out through a window. But the precision that went into this movie and I don't know, it just looks like a painter's touch is all over it. And it, that's one thing that really kind of separates it from Seven. But yeah, this is this is a really, really big, well-made movie that not a lot of people talked about at the time. And um, I, I, I know you're going to get into it because you are you are the um, I think it's fair to say a true crime fanatic. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> so we so for anyone who might not. I mean, if you've if you've never seen the movie go see the movie but just in talking about that first shot before we get into everything um one of the things that i want to talk about it is that uh it it, this movie gives me the impression that from the get-go this is an unsolved case we don't know anything and this is what that opening shot does in that painter's touch you're talking about we immediately see it's fourth of july we immediately get into the point of view of a car, and we don't know. We is this the killer's point of view? Is mm-hmm. this a passerby? 
it ends up being uh, just a, a girl that will later see what happens to her, but we don't know. So I kept finding throughout this whole entire movie that there were all these little touches of, I don't know. And I think it's what makes the two hours and 40 minutes of viewing so enticing and so like thrilling and captivating, but ultimately so frustrating because we don't know. Yeah. And so before we even get into like, you know, the movie itself, we can just talk about that case kind of in a broader scope because, you know, David Fincher was attracted to this because he grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area in the 60s and 70s while these crimes were going down. And yeah, I am certainly a kind of obsessed with true crime too. You know, people ask questions, friends, questions of concern from time to time, but it's all good. I just <laughs> like studying human psychology. There's nothing wrong with it at all. But the, so this movie, Fincher is very clear to state that this movie is based on a book by Robert Graysmith, who Jake Gyllenhaal plays. The movie is not say like all of this happened. This is fact. It's based on his book. And in his book, Robert Graysmith believed very heavily. He even wrote like a follow up book that in which he officially declared as officially as he could declared that Arthur Lee Allen was the Zodiac killer. And the movie kind of adopts his approach and leans. It suggests pretty heavily that that is the case. But Fincher, along with everyone else involved with the case, Fincher wasn't involved with the case, but everyone involved with the case and Fincher, who did an 18th month long independent investigation of his own, all say that who did these murders is still very up in the air. And there's, you know, contradictory evidence this way, substantial evidence this way. So it's never been proved. It's never going to be proved because likely the person who did it has died by now. And that is what is so haunting because you look at there are any number of movies about serial killers in which they have killed more people. I mean, and there's any number of different subjects. You can go with Ted Bundy. You can go John Wayne Gacy and Ed Gein on and on. The reason why Fincher decided to tackle this specific case is one of the things that makes this movie so damn fascinating because it has no resolution. And that ultimately, I think, is one of the reasons why it maybe didn't perform better. I mean, I showed it to Allie. Great, great case in point. She's a true crime buff, too. She liked the movie and appreciated everything it did, but was unsatisfied by the ending. And I went, I was like, that's a totally fair, you know, assessment. How many people do you think were left unsatisfied by this in real life? Like the real case. And I think that's what he was going for. Whether or not that makes for a good movie is completely up to every person who watches it. To you and I, it does. But yeah, it's it's a challenging film, and I really appreciate that. For a major studio movie, it's a really challenging movie to kind of accept and love. And it also came out in a year of arguably one of the best movie years of all time, 2007, and uh, not getting any real award love without really – it kind of flew under the radar. And you know what? I was actually going to wait. We usually do our Oscar discussion at the very end, so we're going to do a little out of order. But this is fitting because this movie had zero Oscar nominations, none. So why is that? Because when you look at this in hindsight, you're like, but how did one of the, yeah, sure, incredibly strong year you had. There Will Be Blood, No Country for Old Men, Michael Clayton, Norbit. <laughs> Norbit received more Oscar nominations than Zodiac, as did Michael Bay's Transformers. Oh, but no. Anyway, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. But anyway. The competition was fierce. Yes, I have a long-running theory that is completely unsubstantiated that this movie was primed for a December 2006 release, and I don't think Fincher would budge on the runtime. And I think Paramount gave him some guff. He finally cut it down, 
maybe as kind of a not so subtle fu they dump it in march this movie came out in march 2nd 2007 that is not when you dump like prestige frankly david fincher films you it's i remember being so weirded out that it was being released at that time and then seeing it and it was done and going that has to be one of the best movies i'm going to see this year like why is this in march anyway but this thing comes out in march and then screens in competition at con two months later that doesn't happen it's always really premieres at con and then is released in theaters so I guess by the time the 2007 Oscars come up with all this insane competition, Zodiac is forgotten at the time, which just seems bizarre. And I'm not trying to be like goofy or funny. I mean, the Golden Compass won won the Oscar for best visual effects. And that's just I'm sure it has good visual effects, as does I think Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End was also nominated. But this movie has some of the best practical use of visual effects I have ever seen. And it is very difficult, even to a trained eye, to tell that they are special effects. In 2007, it was nearly impossible. But now that the technology has gotten a little better, it's a little easier to spot. But the fact that this was just ignored is bizarre for so many reasons, but 2007 was a great movie year, and this one is still very, very much remembered, despite a lack of Oscar noms, and that's all that matters. It's true. It actually is one of the ones that gets talked about the most, especially on Twitter. There's, a, I think that's the reason why this won our, uh, our voting contest, was because people recognize that movie, and it holds up more than a lot of the other great movies that came out that year that were way more praised, Zodiac is still like over here and I don't have the list in front of me but like movies like these are good movies like Atonement that's a good movie Diving Bell and the Butterfly Juno but I do not rewatch those as much as Zodiac there's just no way I mean I I don't sit down and put those on repeatedly there will be blood and no country for old men and Michael Clayton uh, go on a lot in my household so that's just that's one of the great all-time years a top 10 movie year of our lifetime so yeah, a tough competition. This deserved to be a little better recognized, but that's just kind of the David Fincher game now. You know, we live in a world where Mank gets 10 Oscar nominations, and it's like, okay, I, I enjoyed Mank. That's far from his best film, but that gets a lot of noms, and Zodiac gets none, and that's, you know, that's where we are. But the movie, if if you haven't seen it, we're going to ruin the whole damn yeah. thing. We kind of, we say that in our solo pod episodes. We're really good about spoilers in other episodes, but the solo pods... You know, we're we're going to talk about the whole thing. So this movie is, it clocks in at the director's cut a little over two and a half hours. And you it basically traces the investigation of the San Francisco Bay Area Zodiac killer through the eyes of three men. Jake Gyllenhaal, who plays Robert Graysmith, he's a cartoonist at the San Francisco Chronicle. When all this is going on and he becomes, frankly, really obsessed by it, ended up the real Robert Graysmith writing kind of the definitive text of Zodiac that this is that this film is based on. Mark Ruffalo plays Inspector Dave Toski. He's the main detective put in charge of finding the Zodiac and he was loosely Dirty Harry was loosely based on him and the movie kind of has a little fun playing with that and that maybe Toski didn't really appreciate that portrayal but I think that's kind of fun. And then Robert Downey Jr. chews and steals every scene he's in as Paul Avery who is a reporter for the Chronicle who Zodiac kind of toyed with in real life and as depicted in the movie, it completely ruined this guy's life and led him into seclusion in which things just didn't turn out well. And that's kind of the whole point of this is that it leads these three men into different in different periods of their lives. It leaves them into such 
a state of obsession, of unresolved obsession, because I don't know, I kind of have an obsessive brain about stuff too, but there has to be like a means to an end. So if I'm going to obsess about making a movie, one day I'm going to hit that final edit or whatever it is. And that fucker is going to be done. Like it's, it'll be done. I'll obsess about episodes of this podcast, like that Cassavetes episode. We're going to record it and that's going to be done. But the life of a detective, especially one without the technology we have now, must have been just absolutely maddening for these guys. But that's that's the movie in a whole. And it takes its very sweet time covering is not a movie that focuses on the murders, which is really, really cool that it doesn't. The murders are like early and gruesome. But yeah, we go on this spinning investigative ride of you open this door and it goes nowhere. You open that one and it leads two doors further. But yeah, that's the narrative of it. And it's a lot of fun to fall into it every time. And I think that speaks to the long runtime as well. You're talking about a case that spans so many years. And if we're coming from the perspective of these three main characters and the obsession, you could actually say that this movie isn't about the case. It's a movie about obsession. Mm -hmm. To sit with a movie for this long and to go on that ride that these detectives, that these real life men put all of this energy into... It translates. It really comes through. You really feel like you're a detective when you're watching it. You're piecing together the same bits of information that they are. You're going on that ride where they're really, really close. You get opinions. You get thoughts. But then as soon as you kind of feel like you're onto something, that's when you hit a dead end. And that's what you're, what the whole entire movie does. And I don't think that you would be able to feel that frustration, that fascination, that obsession, if the movie wasn't as long as it is, because you're not sitting in it. Like, it's a very, very weird thing to talk about how time in a movie can actually play into an audience's experience with a movie, if you let it, because some people might say that Mm -hmm. this movie did not need to be as long as it is. But I think part of the point is you're sitting with it like these detectives sat with it, and you get to leave a theater, but it ruined their lives. Not not all of them, but one of them for sure. I mean, greatly affected them for, for sure, like it, whether ruined or not. But and, and that's that's kind of the thing here. So this is, you know, I love Law and Order SVU, but this is the antithesis of that. And most anyone who watches SVU knows that the criminal justice system does not work that quickly. It's like you they're always and whatever they want, it works out right then. Like, get me this report. Boom, you got it. And then they're in like court for this mass murder like a week later and then boom, solved, you're going away. The wheels of justice and investigations take much, much longer than that. And that's what he's interested in here and really tediously fussing it out through the eyes of journalists, which journalists and detectives, which I think is just really cool. But another thing that I think is a good argument for why this movie needs to be long in the commentary, Fincher is pretty adamant that. The scene in the car with the baby, before I kill you, I'm going to throw your baby out the window. He is pretty adamant, Fincher himself, into believing that while that event happened to this woman, that that was not the Zodiac killer, which is why he does not show her jumping out of the car. He thought that, I think it, I think he says that would give too much credence to this crime when we do not know for certain that it was him. So then the question is, why include it? Because... Enough people involved thought it was him, 
and it makes for a cinematic scene. But he thought he would be cheating us if he saw some harrowing thing where Ioni Sky, who like you haven't seated, you know, said say anything. She's just here. And it's like, oh, great. If she jumps out of that moving car with her baby, that could somehow be the most discussed scene of the movie. But because it wasn't proved that it was him, he omits that. And I love that shit. I understand why that can be challenging for some viewers but i love that because i that was one of the i mean when that scene was done i just went why didn't he show that why didn't he show that and i kind of became obsessed with those details and then when you're in the hands of fincher almost every question you ask has an answer but you may not like the response but like there's your answer for it and i dig that response and what speaks so well to that too is that that where that scene comes in the time frame of this whole entire real life situation that was at a point where there were so many different theories, so many different the, – the fear that was going on in California at that time was so palpable that everyone was so freaked out. So now we're getting a scene where we don't know what's going to happen. So that's a really cool thing that that was not proven to be linked to the Zodiac, just like so many things weren't linked to the Zodiac, but the terror that is – as a result of it, is what's the thing to take away. I think there was actually like a, a competing Zodiac film around this time. I, I haven't seen any of those. Those are almost like straight to DVD and stuff. You know, maybe those were the two hour version where you're cutting out all of these minute details. And I, ha- have we seen those movies? You know, have we heard of them? Like, no. So you have to kind of add in that stuff. And that's also what makes that, that brings me to kind of another topic I want to talk about. One of the things that makes Fincher Fincher, especially as his career goes on is his use of visual effects in practical settings. Scorsese's doing this a lot too, but I mean, these beautiful matte paintings and then the insistence of this, what must have been incredibly costly time-lapse of the Transamerica pyramid, like being built up uh. stuff like that. Like that's what, Whenever I watch a Fincher film, I always want the scenes. I wrote an essay about this years ago where he makes good use of the mundane. And in this, it's like, how ma- name me a movie where other people go, that shot of that taxi cab was cool as shit. Like, no one says that. No one says that about Taxi Driver. And you watch this movie and there are these amazing, like, bird's eye view shots of this cab before that murder. And... That was not easy to do. That takes a long time. The boat race and social network, that takes a long time to shoot that way. Um, Edward Norton walking through his apartment in Fight Club and the price is popping up. Like Morgan Freeman in the library in Seven, Michael Douglas getting the physical in the game. These are all like, quote unquote, boring sequences that he goes, okay, I'm going to put like a couple hundred grand into this and make this the most talked about sequence of my movie. And I, that's why you need two and a half hours. At least that's my argument for it, because you could just very easily cut to like the dude getting the taxi. You don't need to see these awesome establishing shots, but then you lose that, you know, you lose that mystique of, of a David Fincher film. So in this vein of all the visual stuff, we had the the pleasure of talking about this man in episode seven, when we covered Sofia Coppola somewhere, because they share the same cinematographer. And that is Harris Savitas, who's no longer with us. And that is I mean, if you're film geeks like us, like in the world of cinematographers, that was a huge, huge hit because this guy, he was so innovative in his approach and so fearless. And lucky for us, David Fincher does commentaries for all of his movies. And he just he has endless praise for him. Endless. And he shot the game for Fincher. And I read just before we went on, if Wikipedia is to be believed, 
uh, Savitas also shot the opening credits to Seven, which is kind of cool because those are really, really memorable and really freaky. The way he blends in Zodiac, you know, they shot it digitally and the way they blend like the gorgeous matte paintings and all the practical visual effects is really great. But yeah, what do you think about the look of this film? I think it's so cool. And it it's um <clears throat> at a time too where to me, without especially at that time, not really understanding cinematography, not really like I was able to I consider myself smarter than most at the time, especially from where I grew up. Maybe people weren't looking at movies a certain way. This is probably all around the same time where everything was really forming for me. But this was like the one time where I remember specifically seeing digital David Fincher as opposed to film David Fincher. Mm -hmm. And the thing that popped out to me the most than anything from like the start of the movie are the colors, man. Ugh. I don't know if there's a better use of yellows and greens I've ever seen. And and the way he peppers it in from like the San Francisco Chronicle with those pillars, you remember mm -hmm. like, and it's these tiny little details that make something so important because when you look back at the movie, so much of the time between, especially Robert Graysmith is spent at the Chronicle. Right. You feel what it's like to work there just because of those pillars. Because yeah. whenever you work in a place in your life, you remember certain aesthetic things that just are like, nope, I'll always remember that because of this beam or this wall or whatever. And that's how that was. And then it even comes down to their costumes. The yellows that show up in every outfit that Robert Downey Jr. has, he's dressed <laughs> like that all the time. It just makes me think that when you're a director, you have every choice in the world you want to make. When it comes down to colors, what colors do you want to use for this movie, David? Yellow, green, I think, for the Zodiac. Yeah, that's what I see for this. Like, it, And there's nothing, like, there's no right or wrong here. It's just your what's inspiring you. It's just, how do yeah. I want this movie to look visually? Yellows and greens, let's go with that. It's amazing. Yeah, I'm sure that's a motif because like when I'm thinking of seven, that's so gray. And then something like the game is very dark and blue to me. I mean, put on like Gone Girl, which the whole thing seems kind of baked in like this hay colored haze, you know. So, yeah, color is really important to him. And again, it's one of the things that makes Fincher Fincher. Yeah, I love since you brought up Robert Downey Jr., we can get kind of into the three of them really quick. I just one of the funniest things I've ever seen in a movie is when. Early on when he, you know, he's walking around the newsroom and his editor goes, Paul, and he turns quickly and he goes, yes, Bill. And he's like, can you come in here? And without missing a beat, he goes, very well. And he just marches right <laughs> in. He goes, very well. Oh, man. Robert Downey Jr., we don't need to go into his full career. But this is, this was to me the one that always made the, uh, the official announcement of like, I'm cool. I'm back. I'm here. This is what I'm doing here is kind of my new thing because he got it good in kiss kiss bang bang that was two years earlier and that's a great performance and then iron man comes in 2008 which changes everything for him but this is he's in that really sweet spot of like he got his life back on track but he hasn't turned into tony stark yet and he has an energy here that you know i feel has maybe been lost a little bit among tony stark if i'm being honest and i, I just love to see him as paul avery i we're talking about a lack of oscar nominations this was just standing there, like begging for you to be nominated. I really think that would have been justified. But he has an unmatchable charisma. 
I think that's fair to say in any performance he's ever done throughout his entire career, you cannot help but just be drawn to look at him. Yeah. And that's unteachable. That's that's something that like you're just born with that level of of energy that that it factor. Um, but I love watching Downey in supporting roles like this because while he is that and can't not be that, he's still serving the scene. Yeah. He's not stealing it. He's not stealing focus. He's not stealing the story of the scene, what's important. He's just there elevating it to a, to another level that if he wasn't there, it wouldn't be elevated to. But to see him in a role like this where he's just a part of this ensemble he just flies and 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 the arc of his character from being this journalist that's kind of like you know we don't think about it very much but back in the day journalists were stars yeah absolutely absolutely they were people that were admired around the world because because they had the power in their media form to tell stories the way they wanted to spin them to have a voice, to have a point of view, and to cover the stories they wanted to cover. And that's and so he was this star, and he acts as such, but then, be, due to this obsession, falls into drugs and alcohol, and they take over for him. And to watch Downey Jr. go through that in an amount of scenes where he's certainly not the star of the movie. I would say Hall and Ruffalo have much more screen time than he does, but watching that arc for Downey in, in limited screen time and watch it done so believably. And like one of my favorite little moments that he has is kind of like the big tipping point for him is when he uh, quits and gets fired at the same time. Mm-hmm. And Hall is just like, are you OK? And he just looks at me like, no. Yeah. There's something about that line delivery. Like, there's no way you, I don't think you can kind of like plan how you're going to do something like that. But it, it was just so honest to me that I was like, oh man, he's, he's really not doing good. Yeah. And it's like, it's Robert Downey Jr. Like that dude, he's cool. Like he can get through anything, right? Like he's, he's, in, he's not going to let this beat him down. And then it does. And his, his last scene is just such like an oddly haunting portrayal of a life that went derailed and it's it's very simple they got pong on in the background it's like that shitty little houseboat and it's like i'm just done with this man i'm just and i i remember that being so jarring for me when i saw this and thinking is he out now of the movie like they're they're gonna pass the baton off and they do and they manage to do that really really well and one thing that fincher's always good at is also casting his secondary players so his character actors he's always really really on point with that he has a lot of fun he reuses them a lot which is really really interesting because you don't you don't often see leads doubling up for Fincher films Brad Pitt is obviously the exception but it's no big secret that Fincher kind of demands a lot of his actors and there's a lot of takes flying around so so I love these character actors being brought up we're going to give attention to a few of them because we both found out that we sort of uh, stand for two of these men without knowing it previously. Um, before that, though, John Carroll Lynch, who plays Arthur Lee Allen in this, is he's just one of the really one of the all time great character actors, certainly one of the best living now. I love that guy. He's Francis McDormand's husband in Fargo. I mean, he's he dominated a whole season of American Horror Story. Like this guy is great. And he plays this performance. Just thinking about it gives me chills. That first scene with him at his work. I mean, what he's doing there is so, so specific. So I didn't know if you had any John Carroll Lynch 
thoughts before we get to our two other guys? Well, just talking about that scene in particular, I think that scene with those four men. My favorite scene of the movie, To sorry to interrupt, my favorite scene, yeah. Well, I think that's the scene of the movie in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. People are always talking about that scene, and you kind of wonder why. And I think it's really easy to kind of chalk it up to, um, it's probably the most exciting part because you really feel like you're meeting the killer. Mm-hmm. And the acting is top-notch across the board. From all of those dudes. But I would hold that scene up by itself as one of David Fincher's best of all time, encompassing Mm -hmm. everything that goes into what makes a good scene a good scene. You've got performance and direction. And across the board, that scene just checks all the boxes. But John Carroll Lynch is the driving force of that. That scene would not work if he is not as good as he is. I mean, that's an Academy Award winning one time scene right there. Yeah. I absolutely agree. That's a perfect way to word it. And that will go down as one of the all-time great Fincher set pieces because it's very simple. The camera placements are very simple. Very. But that like persistent humming in the background. And this is a I didn't even plan this. A perfect segue to my guy, who's Elias Cotez, who oh, he plays in this film, he plays Vallejo's Sergeant Molinex. And watching him kind of clock the watch and the shoe in that scene and just seeing it connect in his eyes. And he's like, holy shit, you know, putting all this together. But I love this actor so much. He he's Staros in the thin red line. He kind of has it has a one-on-one battle with Nick Nolte in that movie. That is one of the all time great humane performances just in all of cinema. So I've loved him ever since. It's Casey Jones in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Casey Jones, exactly. <laughs> that was probably one of his big starting ones. He's worked with um Adam uh Egoyan, if I'm saying that right, a lot in what did I just watch? The, the, the in movies like The Adjuster, which is like a really crazy one I watched on Criterion from a little bit ago. Uh he's in Crash, the the David Cronenberg one. I love this guy. So that's he genuinely Damn near anything he's in, I will watch based off his Thin Red Line performances. But I'm going to, I kind of teased your guy earlier, but I want to hear <laughs> when we brought his name up, when we were talking before this pod, you kind of, you went off on a nice little tangent. I went, we got to save this for the pod, but his character introduction is maybe my favorite in the film. But tell me about your guy. Dermot Mulroney. Oh yeah. Oh baby. man. He looks like he's a he's a man to see a man about a horse and he smells like coffee. <laughs> That's a new girl reference to him in that show. Oh, okay. <laughs> totally lost on me. I just thought that was a cool thing to say, but all right, <laughs> cool. It, it, but it is, but it suits him so well. Yeah, because he is just this this very very handsome gentleman, but he's also so he can do it all because he's one of those actors that if you see him, you immediately know his face. You're like, oh, I recognize him. Mm-hmm. And you might not be able to put everything because he definitely had a very like romantic lead kind of career in like the late 90s, early 2000s, my best friend's wedding. Um, but that dude is literally in almost everything. Every TV show you can imagine, <laughs> he has a pretty significant part. He pops up with all these directors, he's in Jay Edgar. He's in About Schmidt. I love him in About Schmidt. I love yeah, him he's in great. Movie so much. And I just like every time I see him, I just immediately am like, Dermot Mulroney's in this. Let's fucking do this. Let's go. <laughs> but that's the reason why we kind of got off on that tangent we were talking earlier. Is that 
I, I, I just like as a director, as a cinematographer, like, again, I'm getting chills. The way his characters introduce camera stationary, the door opens and he just like gr- uh, just leans into frame. And that look, I'm like, that is a grizzled, reti- like doubted out police detective. I know exactly who the fuck that guy is. Exactly. And they had to give him um a little fat suit, I guess, because he was in great shape. Because he's ripped. Was like, nah, man. You yeah, he's ripped. <laughs> he's like, I got to give you a little belly and he said he kind of walked like leading with the belly first he was really hamming the belly up but yeah i i love him in this movie and he has another one of the great line deliveries in the movie which is simply no when that extreme close-up no like not your guy uh always want to give credit to the character actors the men and women who do not have the luxury of showing up and giving bad takes they have to be on all the fucking time. These are my favorite actors. I've always loved them. I went off on a long tangent for Bruce Greenwood when we did Place Beyond the Pines. We did entire episodes for Christopher McDonald and Michael Bean. Please go listen to those. But yeah, this is a really well cast character. We, we, I mean, God, we haven't even talked about Zach Grenier, who's the boss in Fight Club. He pops up in this. Well, we got to talk about Anthony Edwards. I don't know if you remember what Fincher said about him in the, in the commentary, but he was looking for the most decent man he could mm-hmm. find because apparently that guy was very decent. And he goes, Tony Edwards. Yeah, perfect. Like the most decent guy. But yeah, please talk about him. He's great. In this movie. He's so good. I like I. I almost wish that there was a a weird Oscar category for best supporting character actor in a way. I I would love that. (laughs) Because this guy plays Mark Ruffalo's partner for for a big part of their careers. But I would say the first half of this movie uh, is Ruffalo and him tackling this case. And the way that they feed off of each other, the way that they try to solve a case together, put pieces together. They're a tag team. And Ruffalo's the star of the team. But Edwards is just so specifically right for everything that they are as to why they're friends. The animal crackers. Which is true, honestly. Toski really was like addicted to animal crackers like that, yeah. (laughs) And the little talks they had about sushi. And, you know, these are tiny, tiny little things that... To a really good actor, they're everything, actually. They are the things that are like, wow, if this is what we talk about, then that says a lot about who we are. But who are we? And the, and you you really feel like that. And I love the scene where Anthony Edwards is like, I'm done. That's one of my favorite scenes in the movie, again. It's almost like a throwaway scene in a lot of ways. But it's not. It's so significant, especially because you can tell from that point on, Ruffalo is not happy. In his life, it almost Mm -hmm. seems in a lot of ways, because obviously the case has gone on to a point where he has to like he's conflicted and trying to move on from it, but not having his partner. And I love the line that he says when because like Edwards tells him, I think I'm done. And Ruffalo is kind of taken aback, but he goes, well, now you can you can try that that Japanese sushi that you were talking about. And Edwards responds in a way, he's looking at him from the outside of the car, looking at him through the window, and just goes, yeah. In the beginning, when we got to meet this guy, this was Anthony Edwards' like, hopeful thing that he talked about, was, yep. I really want to try this. And now that like that can happen, that response, I don't know what it is. 
I don't know what choice it was. I don't know what prompted Anthony Edwards to do that, but it's so full of life that it affected me. I was like, oh man, that says so much. I read that a few ways that like, because we also have to remember that Ruffalo's character is saying this like years after mm-hmm. this has first been brought up, the Sushi thing. So I either read that as, holy shit, I like completely forgot I even mentioned that. Or yeah, dude, I did that like a really long time ago. And yeah, I, but whatever the choice was, yeah, it's those simple moments of just really good understanding that he is able to pump into it. And I love their dichotomy so much because they have very different energies, which the real guys did in real life. And they just play off each other so well. The, um, I guess the real Dave Toski got ulcers because of this. So Mark Ruffalo kind of incorporated that. And when you know that note, I love knowing that shit. Cause when you know that that actor is deciding my character has an ulcer, that's why he like, takes the tomato off his BLT. He's always popping in, um, I guess, Pepto-Bismol and stuff. And that shit is just, that's the little flavor that you and I are always talking about. Because the first time I saw this movie, I mean, every time I saw it until listening to the commentary, which everyone should do if you're a fan, because David Fincher gives the best commentaries. I, I, I just thought, oh, what a funny thing that he's, you know, I don't really like tomatoes myself, so I might do that too. But I don't, I also don't eat bacon because I'm not a fucking savage. But I don't, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I won't, I won't put any of that. That's not true. It's not true. I don't believe that. Um, you got to keep that. <laughs> yeah, but I remember, I remember seeing that and thinking, oh, cool. What a funny little cork. And now that you know that there's a motivation behind it, it's like, man, that's, I just love that shit. I love that shit so much. He never mentions the word ulcer. Hey, how's the ulcer? Hey, how's the ulcer? Hey, it's never mentioned. It's just there. And Anthony Edwards character clearly knows this too. And I, yeah, I mean, maybe the animal crackers were like calmed his stomach or something or just calmed him. But that's another funny thing. Like if he's the guy who likes animal crackers, why the hell doesn't he have them at his house. Why is his partner bringing it to them? It's like, that's just the way they do it, man. That's the way, it, the way is. it is. That's how you kind of like form relationships. And, and, and it, it's, yeah, exactly. Like it's not talked about. It, it's just existing on its own. So you could watch him take a tomato off the burger and just think to yourself, oh, wow, he doesn't like tomatoes. Totally valid. But the more specific that you can be as your as the actor, knowing that it, it just makes the scene alive in a way that it wouldn't be without i know i've ranted and raved a little bit about these commentaries but you you in particular for this one said like we have to talk about this commentary some of these special features because this is this is a lost art folks like i don't know will mank get like a physical copy release because if it does i like i haven't bought the irishman for instance and i love that movie but i still know that i can watch that Anytime I want, just boom, put it on my TV via Netflix. So I haven't made the leap of like, do I need that criterion? If Mank comes out and it has a director's commentary, I will buy that immediately. And But I don't, I mean, I just don't know if that's going to happen. So we live in a world where I guess studios don't want to fork out the money because consumers don't care enough about special features. You and I really do. His making of featurettes are always very, very interesting because there's always this kind of thing right on the surface that's never mentioned but right on the surface of how fucking difficult it must be to act for this guy yeah like the repeat takes repeat takes and there's something in this movie something that featurette when like jake gyllenhaal has to throw a notebook down in the car seat and you hear fincher go something like yeah throw the first 20 takes out or something i'm not trying to make it some big thing like you're gonna see jake gyllenhaal and david fincher fight here it's not like that people respect him too much but i also think it's 
very interesting and very telling that none of those three guys have worked with him again. And they've been careful, but I've seen some roundtables in which they suggested that it was just too much for them. Like they just kind of couldn't take it and they were glad they left it on the field, so to speak. But I'm, I'm just a guy who's fascinated by the process of a director. We have a director, a solo director coming up. I'm, I'm not going to tease who it is, but whose process is very specific and speaks to a lot of his, how he made his films. And I'm also always thinking about the editor, like this poor guy, yeah. <laughs> Angus Wall, who's, you know, won Oscars for editing Fincher films, but what they must have to sift through. I mean, the mounds and mounds of footage. I don't know, but it, is there anything that stood out to you, like on the on the commentary or the, you know, the special features at all? Of course. And I think it's just really all piggybacking on the same idea that uh, this is really more specifically a conversation and an encouragement to f- other filmmakers, because this is your film school mm-hmm. is watching, especially this one is probably one of the greatest examples of it. But like, yes, not even watching the commentary. If you just put on the the featurette, you get to see David Fincher on how he goes about location scouts. Oh. And they could not. So for the opening scene at Black Rock, where the high schoolers are killed or shot, that location where it actually happened was unrecognizable. So they had to refilm it. And Fincher is talking to his crew and the production crew is like, yeah, it's really intense. Um, you have to, like, because Fincher's so intense that those location scouts are not a walk in the park. Like, that, you you might as well be filming it. But, like, you would not find any of that out if you didn't watch the special feature. Mm-hmm. So the fact that this is no longer a popular thing is really, um, it's Arclight level uh, disappointment. <laughs> yeah, I've been, I've been bummed about this for years. I started noticing this trend. Well, I mean, obviously, when streaming became a thing, the the reliance of physical media became less of a thing. And we still have Criterion, like great Arrow films. Yep. I've been buying a few Arrow films recently. They they do a lot of great stuff. But like, I, I almost <laughs> don't want to spoil like some of the greatest bits of this commentary because I want I want to encourage people to watch it. But here's a really cool thing you would never know unless you listen to the commentary. I've listened to this commentary before, but I had forgotten it. So I'm re-listening to it. Fincher talks about how he arrived at casting Jake Gyllenhaal and Mark Ruffalo, and it was because he was having dinner or he was at a party one night and struck up a conversation with Jennifer Aniston, who's never been in a David Fincher film, but there you are. You're just talking, and she's like, Jennifer Aniston was just so effusive in her praise for Gyllenhaal she worked with in The Good Girl and Mark Ruffalo and Rumor Has It, and that gets the wheels turning in Fincher's head, and then they're both ultimately cast, and That's just a really cool story that I appreciated on that commentary. Another thing that has nothing to do with Zodiac, not really. Fincher produced Lords of Dogtown. He originally wanted Donald Logue in the part of Skip Engblom, which we've talked about in the Heath Ledger podcast because Heath Ledger ended up playing that part. And Fincher says, like, when he saw that performance for the first time, it may as well have been the real guy. And he gives this sort of, like, breathless praise to Heath. But it's, it's just stuff like that. And... Fincher has a way of speaking that you are going to learn a lot, but you're not, it's not like a history lesson because he has a way of explaining it. That's very, very cool. I mean, he takes a lot of people record commentaries once like live as they watch the movie. He spends like months recording them 
months and editing them to make it sound like it's one seamless recording. So there's a lot of verified information pumped into it. But yeah, long, long live Blu-rays. I mean, what, what do I say? Long live commentary. <laughs> who am I speaking to? Yeah, who am I speaking to out there? Like who... Commentaries are not unlike podcasts. If it's a movie you like a lot, like really, really love it and it seemed a lot, throw in the commentary. And I'm not saying you have to like study every single yeah. frame of it, but I don't know. It's just kind of cool. It's also hard because so many commentaries are hit or miss. Yeah. And you may have an actor in particular where you're like, wow, oh. they did a commentary for it. Actor ones are usually not good. No. So it's tough. It depends how much you like the movie. I get it. But man, Finchers are so good. And I hadn't really thought about the Mank thing. I wonder if he'll release physical media of that because, I mean, I bought The Curious Case of Benjamin Button on Criterion just to listen to the commentary. I already own the fucking thing on regular <laughs> DVD, and then I bought another one. <laughs> so what's wrong with me? <laughs> Speaking of commentary, special features, real quick. If you haven't seen Zodiac or if you have seen it but have not seen the director's cut, I would really urge you to give that a shot. That's not the one that typically plays on streaming. It's not that much longer, but... It has a few flourishes in it, in particular that like what I think is an ingenious kind of 60 second sequence when it's all black and you hear those songs and the newsreels mm -hmm. and we go and four years go by. I think that's right after the Dirty Harry premiere scene. And it, it just has little cool stuff like that that I guess I get why a major studio wouldn't want to release a movie that long in the theater. But it's not that much like it's a fun world to think of. What if this movie comes out December 2006 and it's competing against the departed for you know best picture that's kind of an interesting thing or just competing for something for any award against you know the 2006 oscars which weren't really that good you know the there was i think they could have snuck in there a little easier i don't know is alan arkin winning supporting actor over all the great supporting actors in this movie i don't know maybe what do i know it's a crazy thought it's a crazy crazy yeah. thought I guess the only thing that um, I also just kind of wanted to rave about was the production design. When you look at every, like the phones, the paper that they're writing on, the newspapers, they actually found all of those newspapers and put them in the actor's <laughs> hands. And they're like, this is the actual paper that came out. So you, what you're reading. Like and on that at, day. <laughs> yeah, on that day. This is the actual newspaper. Um, which That's also insane. speaks to just how intense... And specific David Fincher is. He is not going to let a single thing go that isn't as authentic as it can possibly be. Yeah. I would notice the notepads that they're writing on, even down to the the, the animal cracker box, the cars. I mean, everything about... Oh, one thing I did want to say, this is not about production design at all, but it is a really cool moment that kind of speaks to how I hijacked the start of the podcast. I'll finish it this way. <laughs> it, to speak to how in this movie, we don't know mm -hmm. as like an overall kind of idea that, uh, you know, we that there is no resolve to this case. The things that we actually want to know, we will never know. I don't know if this was intentional, but this was the way I took it, is it's the scene where Mark Ruffalo and Anthony Edwards are um, dissecting the taxicab murder, mm -hmm. and they're talking to the family that lives across the street that called the cops, and Ruffalo is wanting to question the father's children, one by one, <laughs> without the father, if, if at all possible. Yeah. Fucking hilarious. It's so funny. And so he doesn't get that, though, because immediately after he asks for that, they cut to a scene where 
he's talking to both of the kids and it looks like the father I think is probably present but the camera's only on Ruffalo mm-hmm. and he's asking these questions but the kids are actually being very specific and saying what he looked like this scene cannot be more than 30 to 40 seconds but I am having this unbelievable need to see these kids' faces for some reason. And I'm like, maybe this feeling that I'm having about really wanting to just in this moment to see what these kids look like and see what they're saying is the overall theme of we really want to know who fucking did this, but we're never going to find out. And Fincher does not cut away from Ruffalo. We end that scene and we never see what those kids look like. I don't know. There's a million of different reasons how that could have been, but I like to think of it as that's why. Well, here's a little teaser for everyone. If you want an exact answer to why he stays on Mark Ruffalo's face, listen to the commentary because I remember specifically why he said it and don't want to say because I want people to listen to the commentary. But <laughs> what? But ultimately what he's doing there, you, you know what I was thinking about a lot? When watching this movie, it's so weird, was Paul Schrader's first reformed because what he does in that is he immediately plays with our sense of timing. Because when a character for in first reformed, when a character leaves a room and we see the door close behind them, why are we still in the room? Why are we watching the door? Now it's 15 seconds. Okay, now we cut. What that does to you, it may seem annoying at first, it is playing with your sense of time mm-hmm. and telling you, I have my own language here. I'm not doing what you expect me to do. Fincher does that shit all the time. You expect him to cut to the people who are fucking talking, but he doesn't. We just see this one detective's face who's a little frustrated that he's not getting this information the way he would. And uh, I love that. All that shit takes a lot of thought. Mm -hmm. That's a really cool scene, too, in the way of production design and visual effects, because they had to recreate all that. They could not afford to close that actual block down in San Francisco for like five nights. So they recreated it on a soundstage. And then all the backgrounds are digital. And you can see all of that on the making of feature. And it's cool as shit. And that's also the only sequence in the movie that's um, or one of the few that's handheld, which I think is just really cool because Fincher very rarely goes handheld. But it's really cool watching this with, you know, a few years given distance because I'm watching this going, I can't really tell this is a 2007 movie in terms of the way it looks like this is. This could, as we get, you know, longer and longer with digital, like, I think this is going to be more of a timeless movie that in terms of why it didn't do better financially, it basically broke even, which is crazy. Why it didn't do better with Oscars. I think all that's just going to get much more baffling as time goes on, or at least I certainly hope so, because we say this all the time. We talk about the Oscars. It's kind of time is the best judge of what the what matters and what is the true kind of winner. And if these nominations, 2007 nominations were today. It'd be really cool, actually, because there's so many good movies there. Like, I forgot to mention Jesse James earlier, which yeah. got a few noms, not nearly as many as it deserves. So Zodiac, again, if you've seen it but haven't seen it for a while or never been able to get your hands on the on the director's cut, please do because it's worth it. But we're going to press on here to what are you watching? I think I went first last time, so why don't you kick it over? Curious to see what you're going to go with. I feel like I always go first. <laughs> I always go first. Well, I write it down, but it's up to you. You go. No, I'll go. You, you oh, I'll go. And I got one. I got one. All right. So um, do I, in fact. <laughs> so I'm going to go because of um, thinking about Mark Ruffalo and all of this, because I really, really loved. I mean, that dude is probably currently today top five for me. 
I want to talk about a movie Fred he did in 2004, directed by John Curran, called We Don't Live Here Anymore. Oof. It's based off of a short story by one of my favorite short story novelists. I've talked a bit about him on Twitter, Andre Dubois. And it's actually a pretty good um, adaptation from the short story. It does segue a little bit towards the end, but it's a heavy movie. But <laughs> damn it if it's not really good. Uh, so that is my pick. We don't live here anymore. Uh, I love that. I had no idea you were going to go there. I I have always really, really liked that movie. Naomi Watts. Yeah. I mean, that was right around 21 Grams time, which is still like one of my bars for acting. I think she's incredible in that movie. This is a very sexually uninhibited movie. And, it, you know, those don't really exist anymore. And what they do together, their chemistry is really kind of intense. And this is a great Laura Dern performance, too. Just not a lot of people talk about this movie. I, I really like that movie. I might might have to throw that one on again. But, yeah, good call. And just to round it out, because you brought up all the other supporting cast in that, Peter Krause. Oh, yeah. That dude. If we're talking about actors that, I mean, he's gotten a few leading roles in his time. Like, he is the lead in Six Feet Under. Yeah. And, and he has been in a few other TV shows. But... I can't say enough good things about him. I think he's one of those guys where you you put him in anything, he he's going to deliver and be very very believable. Yeah, and he's great as like the frustrated, tormented writer who can't get a word down. Mm -hmm. Great pick, great pick. I went with um a fairly obvious choice in researching this because in researching Zodiac, the biggest film influence according to David Fincher was Alan J. Pakula's 1976 masterpiece, All the President's Men. I went to journalism school, I have a degree in journalism, so when that happens, all the president's men is you study about that case endlessly. This is the Watergate case in which Carl Bernstein, played by Dustin Hoffman, and Bob Woodward, played by Robert Redford, kind of exposed and what Nixon had done in this Watergate scandal and exposed it through many articles in the Washington Post. And this movie's reliance on getting the investigation right by any means necessary and grinding 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 and i mean it has that really extended sequence of robert redford whose line whose line delivery of bob woodward at the washington post i love the way he says that when he's on that fucking notepad and it just goes on and on and on and you can see the more calls he makes he's connecting these threads and i did that i mean i mean i was a journalist for local newspapers so no stories that big but i know that sensation of like oh i'm oh shit i'm doing this phone call and i'm Filling in that block, checking that box. Okay, 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 cool. So I I really, really love this movie. Jason Robards won the Oscar for playing Ben Bradley. He's great, you know. Fuck it, let's stand by the boys. I fucking <laughs> love Jason Robards. <laughs> this movie also won Oscars for screenplay, art direction, and sound. Not a lot of movies about journalism win the Oscar for sound. And that's just, uh, that's great. This one's also shot very, very well, has a very keen eye. So yeah, all the president's men, we don't live here anymore. Good stuff. All right, that's it from us. Thank you again, everyone, for listening. It was a lot of fun to dive into Zodiac. We know this has a lot of a lot of people like this movie on Twitter. So if you are a fan of the movie, let us know what you think at W-A-Y-W underscore podcast. But as always, thanks for listening and happy watching. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. You can watch my films and read my movie blog at alexwithrow.com. NicholasDostal.com is where you can find all of Nick's film work. And of course, you can find us on Twitter at W-A-Y-W underscore podcast.
Next time, we're going to dive into our favorite movies of 1973. I promise you, I promise that this episode features our most outrageous podcast moment yet, and you will absolutely know what I mean when you hear it. Stay tuned. So that's Zodiac. So a lot of good, few good recommendations there. Give Zodiac a shot. Give some Mark Ruffalo movies a shot. I fucking hate ending. I never know what to do. Dude, you're doing okay. So that's you're doing great. So that's <laughs> give Mark Ruffalo right, a shot. <laughs> like he needs give one. Give Mark Ruffalo a shot. <laughs> fucking idiot. <laughs> you won't be disappointed, folks. I tell you, go see Mark Ruffalo. He won't let you down. He won't. That's it from us. Zodiac, great film. It's never gonna go away. It's never gonna die. <laughs> God damn it. I'm ruining this. I used to uh, write down the outros. Now I don't. Okay. No, seriously. Mm.